My name is Eric Chase, and I uh, own and operate the uh, Greenwich Village Literary Pub Crawl. We've been doing it for about, like I said, 15 years. 1998 was when the first tour happened. I have a team of guides. We sort of tour through Greenwich Village, which is one of the few neighborhoods that are still somewhat historically preserved. It's got the brown... Uh, got the brown streets. Okay, right. yeah, you know your research. St- street signs, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. If you see the brown, you know that the, it takes a, a lot of work to change the building. We go to, especially starting here at the White Horse Tavern, um, bars that were very well-known writer's bars. Where a lot of writers were coming here, drinking here, writing often here. And then... Um, in between, we'll sort of tour around and we'll find some other spots that, like I said, either somebody lived in or sometimes where some of the stories were, uh, were uh, set uh, or where some of the stories were written. And usually we're trying to find sort of interesting architectural buildings that go with it. Um, and what we do, which is somewhat unique, is we also perform uh, some of the writer's work. So we're really trying to bring out a passion for the word and for the writing, as well as doing it over a chilled beer or a glass of wine. Do you want um, yeah, can I do like a half line of uh, what he has? You want to identify the place, mm-hmm. and then you want to introduce some of the work that may have been produced in that place. Correct. Why? It's something tangible about being somewhere where a writer that you've loved, that a writer that you've known has written something that has moved you, and to be able to see some of the streets where they live, to get it, to get a sense of what the city, what the neighborhood, what that area was like during that time. One of the people we sometimes talk about is Edgar Allan Poe. Very little is left as far as the buildings that were around, but there are a few that are still standing, and there is something neat when you try to imagine um, the, uh, like the northern dispensary, which will go by, that was built right around when he was living down the street with uh, Virginia Clem um, while she was ill uh, as a young teenager. And... Uh, Knowing that he was walking by there, that he got treated there for a head cold, there's something really neat about seeing part of that building and then trying to go back in time. But what is that that's really neat? It's like if you see New York City on television, you have one perception of it. Thank you very much. When you're, when you're walking the streets and you're seeing it firsthand, it comes to life more. It's more than just a picture on a screen. It's more than just words on a paper. We stop by a place, uh, very, it's very well known in the neighborhood, most of your tours will go there, where O. Henry sent one of his, wrote one of his stories, The Last Leaf, where he said it. If you read that story now, you can picture the building, you can see where the leaves are that this girl was talking about in the story. It, it comes to life in a whole new way. You can see what the inspiration was. Um, so in some sense, you kind of get to walk <laughs> the steps. You get to sit down, and we try to find a bar like White House Tavern, which is sort of technically the second oldest bar in, in the city. You know, you're sitting at, at the bar that Dylan Thomas was drinking at and writing at and um, sometimes getting a little too drunk at. Not I think, just sometimes. Not, yeah, yeah, most of the time. I'll raise a glass to that. So I think that's, that, that's part of it. And it seems like that is what really resounds in the people who come on the tour. Kind of a pilgrimage, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Another way at coming at the work, I suppose. Not fact-checking, necessarily, because they probably got some idea in their head, and the, maybe the, the reality is slightly different. Sure. We are talking uh, about people tension? who are very creative about telling stories, and yeah. uh, we actually find with a lot of the research we do that you, we have to take some of it with a grain of salt because sometimes the source of the information is the writers themselves. And a yeah. few drinks and a person who's very eloquent, and uh, that fish can keep kind of getting bigger and bigger as the story gets retold. And One of the things that we've tried very hard to do, you know, really a, a lot of it is on me, um, 
is trying to find the sources for most of this information. A lot of stories and legends have getting passed down, and a lot of tourists and you know young tour guides just regurgitate what they were taught. And I spent several years trying to find what's the source of that story. So we can at least feel somewhat certain that I know where it came from. Now, whether that source is wrong, we're not sure, but at least I have something tangible mm-hmm. or we can sell it off as a legend. New York has such a history of, of lying, taking advantage yeah. of, of yeah. telling stories that aren't true, even to this day. I mean, some bartenders will make up stories. We met a, a guy who was interested in being a guide, and he flat out told me that he would sometimes make up stories to tourists about things that happened in the village, and I don't want to do that. No. I want I want to know where it comes from. You know, I, I have a certain amount of integrity. So yeah, I assume you've you've read a lot of the uh, authoritative biographies of these authors. I try, yeah. I try. My reading list is large. The stacks of book on my bookshelf that I have yet to read is so large that my wife won't let me go into a bookstore <laughs> until I read half of them because I can't walk out without buying a, a yeah. few extra books. It's a good sign, and it, it, it is. And it's it's like one of the things that's really benefited me from doing this is this exposed me to writers I'd never heard of before, and I've read so many novels. Um, a woman, Don Powell, who's a, a very central Greenwich Village figure, but not many people have heard of her. Right. Her books went out of print for a while until her journals got printed again in the uh, late 90s, early early aughts. Uh, and, and they just really brought to life New York City, Greenwich Village, that whole scene in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And it re- renewed this interest in her, and now her books are in print again. I'd never heard of her before. I read one of her books, and it blew me away. I could not believe it went out of print. I couldn't believe it's not taught in schools. I mean, it's such. Mm-hmm. She's got such a wonderful tongue-in-cheek style. It's just one of those like I never would have come across her without having done the tour. And I take pride in the fact that there are people who are reading Don Powell because they came on my tour, uh, and most of them are enjoying it. Um, to me, that's the the biggest sign when this is going successfully well is when I see people pull out a notepad to write down the book that I just quoted or I just talked about. Yeah. Uh, and people email me and ask me for reading lists and suggested reading. And, and there's something that I um, I, I love finding new authors that are writing now, but I also love bringing back authors that that were so instrumental in the literary, historical, and social life of this country that yeah. we don't think about anymore. I think that's another thing that's useful to think about, and that is the adding of value to a place. The more people know about a place and, and about the interesting writers that may have inhabited it, and, and buildings and streetscapes and that sort of thing, that perhaps the less likely or uh, able developers will be able to, to destroy it. You know, that's, that brings up several interesting points that, that we've seen through here. Um, there's been uh, cases where there was an Edgar Allan Poe house where he wrote several of his short stories um, on what is now Third Street. It used to be, it was Amity Street when he was living there. Um, some people speculate he may have written uh, The Raven partially there, although peop- I- I've heard people in Utah say that The Raven was written at a bar. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's a, That's one of those... Plus you've whoever got knows. Philadelphia versus Baltimore. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, and everyone wants to take a piece of The Raven, so yeah, yeah. we'll give them that. The only thing that I've found concrete is that, that, that I think I found the place where it's believed he read the entire poem out loud to an audience for the first time. Okay. But where I was going is that NYU ended up tearing that house down. Um, years ago as they were expanding their dorms here and there was a big uh, outcry for that but nobody had protected the house yet and so it was a little bit too little too late and that does sort of happen and that the flip side of that is you also find people who either try to, to tag an author in a, in a home or make up the fact that an author lived there because all of a sudden that $5 million house becomes a $9 million house because there's a draw to that somebody wants to buy the house that Edna St. Vincent Millay lived 
because Edna St. Vincent Millay lived there. You know, somebody's excited to be renting and paying an extra $2,000 a month because Bob Dylan once lived in that apartment. Okay, so what, what is it, again, what is it that, that motivates that? Is it being, like, getting in touch with or hoping that that'll rub off on them somehow? Or what know. is it? I, I, that's such a deep question uh, to ask. I think it is, it's, it's, it's only may, means something to the people who care. To live in a Bob Dylan apartment, you have to love Bob Dylan. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just whatever. You know, there are some people who are living in an apartment that Hart Crane lived in. No, nobody knows. They don't even know who the guy is. It yeah. doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Somebody who does, there's something yeah. to it because it's it's already a value that the individual has placed on that writer and what that artist has done to them. So, you know, yeah. somebody who who was really excited to live in a Bob Dylan apartment, loved Bob Dylan's music, loved his poetry, was touched, was moved. Felt like changed their life. Changed their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I look at uh, Kurt Vonnegut is probably one of the first authors that changed how I read, that changed how I looked at the world. Um, I would pay extra money to be something like that because it is. You try to imagine who somebody who inspired you, what he was like as a young man living in that place at that time. As an actor. As an. <laughs> <laughs> you realize you're interview. I'm being he, interviewed right now. How are you? Yeah. So sorry. <laughs> how would you know? How are you, Jackie? Good to see you. Good to see you. How is everything? Very good. And yeah. you? Really good. Yeah, I'll I let you complain. go, and we'll talk soon. We need to catch up soon. Absolutely. We need to catch up very soon. Good to see you. I love New York City for that. Yeah. Uh, she and I have done several uh, plays together. She's hysterical, wonderful actress. And you're an actor? Yes. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And a director. And a designer, and a producer, and a production manager, and everything else that kind of pays the bills. Yeah, right. <laughs> tended to do more corporate work later, but this is this is one of the few sort of uh, projects of passion, and, and I'm, I'm hoping to turn this into something that, you know, I, I can't really ever see it becoming a full time job. No. Um, and, and in some ways, I wouldn't want it to because that means there's too many people coming, and there is something special that the people who are coming on this are people who care about Bob Dylan's apartment. Yeah. are people who care about where Hart Crane lived. They're not nece- I don't necessarily want people who would want to ride around on a bus tour. You know, I want people where the, the, the literature means something, the authors yeah. mean something. You know, I, I, I have book clubs that come on the tour. I love that. I love because it. they often will be able to tell you things about Absolutely. the author that you didn't know. Oh, I can't, I can't even tell you how many uh, aspects of our tour has been expanded because of people who came on and shared their stories yeah. and, you know, had personal connections with the authors over there when something happens. And those stories get, become part of the lexicon yeah. of our tour. Um, I love it when people can share <laughs> share that kind of thing. You know, one of my running jokes is I always say, you know, if you have any information, please speak up. If you have any questions, ask. If you are the writer we're talking about, please let me know. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> but just go soft on my ego. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I haven't had anybody that's uh, popped up yet. Is uh, but I've had, I've had uh, authors coming, but obviously they haven't yeah. been established yet. And I always tell them, "There's other bars in the village. Go do something really crazy at a bar and write something <laughs> right. there, and then I can start Make a new it tour." Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, when when this tour started in 1998, there was easily 10 or 15 literary bars in the village that we could have gone to. You know, we go to three now. Uh, there's probably a handful that I might be able to get permission to go into, but they've either torn down, converted into something else, become um, sort of a celebrity chef restaurant that takes six months to get a reservation, and so it's not as accessible yeah. as it used to be. And I have watched 
you know, I watched the neighborhood, uh, and, and in 1998, it was already changing, but I watched it sort of become something where 20-somethings artists could still almost afford to live here to watching Bleecker Street becoming a place where Ralph Lauren has three boutiques, high-end boutiques. It used to be all mom and pop stores, and I watched that transformation happen over the, the last 15 years that we've been doing it, and it's... You know, it's the cycle of life, what happens, but it is, it's hard as a historian not to feel a little bit of a pang of everything that made this neighborhood great, which is what drew people here and is drawing them here now, is changing. You yeah. know, the writers were coming to Greenwich Village because it was cheap. It was yeah. a slum. But isn't it interesting, that whole idea of how run-down neighborhoods get gentrified, and typically it is the artists, the poor, mm-hmm. who move in first, and they, I suppose make it trendy, and then they can't afford it. Yeah. But then walking tours come in because of the uh, yeah. original oh. uh, output of the uh, uh, of the artist. Yeah, and, and um, the, well aware of that sort of dichotomy. And, and you know, one of the things that... Uh, I, I remember early on having people yell at us when we were doing the tour. What, because uh, you're standing in front of their house and well, they didn't the, like it? Or? The, well, there was one woman who just hated the fact that we would be there for two minutes talking about a building and she would yell at us each week. Uh, and there was one person who was yelling about making money off of the artists. Right. Um, you know, of course, many of them didn't know that you know most of the people involved with this are were you know, artists and, you know, playwrights. People enjoy walking tours. It is making money off of the history. Um, That's also paying tribute to... It's paying tribute. Excellent. To me. And, and to me, it's 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 really, like, my guides and myself, I mean, we're passionate about this material. We don't just hire anyone. Like, you almost have to go through this proof that you really want to do the tour and you care about the things that are going on. I mean, yeah. to me, it's about the writing and the literature. And I want people to read the novels because by doing this tour I'm reading the novels you know and we're trying to to revive a history that most of the walking tours aren't even paying attention you know and we're not trying to do the let's take a picture of where this person lived we're trying to say this is what this person did and this is how it changed the world this is what the writing was here's an excerpt of the writing you know to to us it's almost like I want the publisher should be coming to me (laughs) and thanking me for increasing sales of the work you're promoting the writer we're, we're promoting in a way. The writer. Yeah, we really yeah. are. You know, we're promoting the bars. We're, you know, yeah. promoting the neighborhood, and it is. And sometimes I, I battle with the fact that you know it, it, it also adds to the change that's happening here. You know, and when we started in '98, there were maybe one or two other tours going. I mean, yeah. now on a Saturday afternoon, we'll see ten. And many of them are going to all the same literary spots. Tours no, not not just, necessarily literary no, but tours, but there, some of them are going to some of the same stops yeah. that have become really sort of famous buildings in the neighborhood. But as you say, okay, we're sitting here at the White Horse Tavern, and Dylan Thomas got pie-eyed here. He did connect with other people, and in fact, that's a, that, I think that's a really interesting association between sociability and creativity Mm -hmm. the fact that a lot of great ideas come out of sitting in a bar Mm -hmm. talking about stuff but the point is that it's as you say it's fine he was here but it's about his work this is the most important thing Mm -hmm. and if and if you can lead or encourage people to to get excited about that you know doing your job yeah we usually do a recitation of his poem do not go gentle that good night when we're here and you know, I've said that poem every time I've done the tour as a guide. Been a guide, I think, for 12 of the 15 years we've been around, and um, I get chills every time. And it's it's really great to watch people just close their eyes and listen and and hear it. And you know, many of them know it, some people don't. But 
that's what it comes back down to again. Is that this is he drank a lot, he drank himself to death. death. That's the yes. legend here. Yeah. More than that, though, I think it's quite clear that he didn't he get carted off to a hospital nearby. Yeah. I mean, well, there 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 are sort of varying variations yeah. on that. And again, this is one of the things. Like, I did a, a lot of research, and some people say that he died like right out there, which is not true. He, right. He, his famous 18 straight whiskeys was allegedly said the night before he uh, slipped into a coma, and the next day, from what I found, he came back. And then he was rushed to St. Vincent's Hospital. He, he also had pneumonia. He, you know, he had brains. He had all these complications going on. Except his liver was in perfectly good condition because <laughs> it was pickled, probably. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, that is he did. You know, he he drank here very very heavily. But again, I was reading a, an interview with the bartender that night, and I don't remember what his off the top of my head what. Dylan Thomas's brand of whiskey was, but the bartender had heard this quote like the next day and looked at the bottle and he said, I opened that last night. There's no way I poured 18 whiskeys out of it. So even that quote yeah. might be an embellishment that Dylan Thomas was saying because he was drunk and, you know, showing off to the woman he was cheating his, his wife with up there. You know I mean? Classic example, I was in London a few weeks ago for a, a job and I just happened to be showing up right as uh, they were setting up for Margaret Thatcher's uh, purse yeah. to be going by to take her to the funeral. Um, and... Uh, there's something really neat about being there and just seeing that hearse come up. I'm not British. There's history that happened there, and I got to sort of witness it. You know, going to uh, Dealey Plaza years ago um, when I was on tour playing Romeo, it was such a profound thing for me to be walking around where Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, there's history yeah. there. You know, that, yeah. that meant something to me that I, was, that I was aware of. And the same thing, Dylan Thomas means something to me. To be here where he was, even if it was just drinking here, yeah. Jack Kerouac drank here a lot. It's like paying tribute. Yeah, in a way, in it a, is. In a small way. Yeah, you know, some of us, we like to follow in the footsteps of those people yeah. that inspired us a yeah. little bit. And so that is that is part of what what this is about. We're speaking of footsteps. Shall we? Why don't we make some? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's turn that off. Seeing as what you're doing is as much as anything about bringing literature lovers to place and, and the works, perhaps you could give us a sample of the work. At, at the White Horse, we, we talk about Dylan Thomas because like, he, he drank himself to death, according to the legend. And uh, one of the poems that we always like to share is probably one of his best-known poems. Uh, it's a beautiful poem, and he wrote it for his dying father. And it goes, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end no dark is right, because their words have forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learned too late they grieved it on its way, do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men, near death, who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on that sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray, do not go gentle into that good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Little Thomas. There's also a, uh, a fun contrast because we like to talk about uh, Jack Kerouac a lot. We, we point out a couple of bars that he had gone to. He spent a lot of time writing in the village. Are you familiar with Jack Kerouac? I can't say I'm a huge fan, uh, but I'm familiar. You know, it's yes. funny that he's one of those guys that's like hit or miss. Uh, yes. Some people love him, some people hate him. I mean, yeah. he's inspired 
you know, millions of writers, and he's turned off millions of readers, and uh, he, he can be very controversial that way. But I he, think I think his persona and what he stood for is is wonderful and interesting. But the way he wrote it, he kind of just did a brain dump, and that's for me how it reads. But uh, I, well, and it's true, you know, and he did. I mean, that was actually a choice that he made, and I, I think that he certainly left a stamp artistically. Some of his stuff that he's written, I, I just find to be genius, and others, it is definitely a little hard to read. Um, but he did. He made an interesting analogy. He said, "You never go to a bar." and you hear somebody telling a joke or a story and suddenly they stop and say, wait a minute, I could tell that better. Let me go back. The story is in the moment and the life and that he really felt that that was the correct way to, uh, to do it. But yeah. there's an excerpt from On the Road, which is an iconic piece that we like to talk about and it's about Dean Moriarty, whose real name is Neil Cassidy, but he calls himself Dean in the book, uh, parking cars at a place that was up on 23rd Street and 7th Avenue. And uh, it's at the beginning of the book and he writes... Dean was wearing a real western business suit for his big trip back to Denver. He just finished his first fling in New York. I say fling. He only worked like a dog in parking lots. The most fantastic parking lot attendant in the world. He could back a car 40 miles an hour to a narrow space, race swiftly among fenders, leap into another car, circle it 50 miles an hour into a narrow space, back swiftly into a tight spot, hump, snap the car with the emergency so you see it flies out, then off to the ticket shack, sprinting like a track star, hand a ticket, leap into another car, before the owner's half out, leap literally under him as he steps out, start the car with the door flapping, and roar off to the next available spot. Arc, pop in, break out run, working like that, without pause, eight hours a night, in evening rush hours, after theater rush hours, in greasy wino pants, and a frayed fur-lined jacket, and beach shoes that flapped. And this was how my whole road experience began, and the things that were to come are too fantastic not to tell. That's fantastic. Isn't it? And I love that quote. Thanks for telling us, too. Absolutely. Thank you for letting me share. I'm speaking with Eric Chase of the Greenwich Village Literary Pub Crawl. Be there.